Revelation chapter 2. Be reading verses 8 through 11. It's on your large print sheets. But it is also found. It's also found on page 1656. 1656. 1656, if you're using a pew Bible. Revelation chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 11. Here is, this is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead, came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to this passage as we did two weeks ago in the first part of this two-part message, two-part series, letter to the church in Smyrna, in which Christ commends, Christ praises the church for its faithfulness in troublous times. Christ commends the church for its faithfulness in troublous times. A couple of weeks ago, as we started to consider this, we asked rhetorically, what do people think of when they think of the church? Well, I suppose they often think of a building, a nice, pretty edifice. They think of a place to meet nice, respectable people. They think of an institution that has lots of programs, especially community service. But as we noted two weeks ago, this, what we have here in this, in these four verses of Revelation chapter 2 is a totally different picture It is not that of nickels, numbers, and noise, of money and people and lots of activity. That's not the picture. The picture we have is that of the church militant, the church like an army, the church at war, the church on the march, and the church that in this warfare is going to suffer. That's the picture that we have. You know, I was just hearing, a, I was just listening to a sermon this morning, and the preacher 
said, blood is not pretty, it's ugly. Blood is not something we like to think about, but Jesus shed his blood for our sins. And we are engaged in a real battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's being fought in the heavenlies with the angelic beings. Real flesh and blood reality, sometimes to the point, listen children, listen, sometimes it comes to the point of believers being killed for the sake of Jesus. That's the picture that we have throughout Scripture, and that's the picture that we have here. Now, this sermon is part of a continuing series on the book of Revelation, in which the risen Christ rules gloriously in the midst of the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks, representing the seven churches in Asia, or Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Each of the letters picks up a part of the description that was been, that it was given of Christ in chapter 1. Last time we considered, or the previous section, we considered the church in Ephesus, which had not just lost its first love, but actually had departed from, had left its first love. But now, as we, as we are in southwestern Turkey... We're, we're swinging up, as it were. We're going clockwise. So we're going from about the uh, 8 o'clock position where Ephesus is, and we're going up around the coastline there. We're going up, a bit in from the coastline actually, uh, to the next city, which now is Smyrna. It was a beautiful city. It was the jewel of Asia Minor. But the church, as we note here, was surrounded by hostile forces, by Jews who wanted to court Rome's favor. These Jews, as we've pointed out, were most likely among the rich, the elite of the city, and they especially hated the Christians. But then also they joined forces with pagan religion, Smyrna was one of the centers of emperor worship, of, of, of uh, giving, of burning incense to the emperor as if he is God. Religious authorities invoked the aid of the state, of civil authorities to suppress Christianity. And a man by the name of Polycarp, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P, Polycarp, was burned at the stake middle of the second century. Now last time we looked at verse 8 as an introduction to the angel of the church in Smyrna right, the angel meaning a messenger. I have suggested that this could be uh, uh, not just one messenger, it could be all of the presbyters or all of the elders that bring the word of God. But in any case, to the angel of the church in Smyrna right, these things says the first and the last. In other words, the one who is truly God. The one who is truly God. The first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The be- and the end. 
It is this Christ who is coming with this message. And notice how also he is described, the one who was dead, who already became dead, but now has come to life. Last time we heard the encouragement by this living Christ, the encouragement. Notice the, the knowledge of their troubles. I know. I know. I know, Jesus says. I know. What does he know? He says, I know your works, your good deeds. I know your tribulation. I know the troubles you've been through. I know your poverty. The fact you don't have a lot, probably because of having stuff taken away, becoming destitute because of your profession of faith, because of the gospel itself. I know. I'm aware of that. All that persecution. I know all about it. I know. And I know the blasphemy, the slander against the believers trying to destroy their reputations, but also actual blasphemy against God, slandering the Lord Jesus, using God's name in vain, and how we hear this in our society today. We hear it on the TV. We hear it in the media. We hear it in the entertainment world. We hear it on the so-called news channels. We hear it in schools. The blasphemy against the Lord and against his Christ. And the one who is the great I am. The one who is the first and the last. The one who was dead and has now come to life. This living Christ hears all of this blasphemy all of that opposition against himself and against his people and he comes in the midst of the church and he says to them I know I know who are these people who are blaspheming they were the Jews that is to say those who nationally and racially were Jews but they were not the true sons of Abraham Actually, they together were a synagogue of Satan as they despised and blasphemed God and his people. And, but there's encouragement that because Jesus says, I know. But also, notice what he says in a parenthesis here. Know your poverty or rich. You're rich. Oh, you may not be rich in this world's goods, in gold and silver coins and so forth. But you are rich in your knowledge of myself. You are rich in your faith. You are rich in your knowledge of scripture. You are rich in terms of, of heaven, which is the paradise towards which you are headed. You're just a passing through. You are rich. You are rich. And so we have the encouragement. And now today we come to the exhortation in which the Lord Jesus says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. Verse 10. Don't fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid what you are about to suffer. You see, the Lord warns them in advance. He warns them. He's saying, you're going to go through trouble. This fact that the Lord cares about them to give them warning is another reason for our comfort. He knows and he cares 
The people of God, therefore, need not fear, for he will go with them. Indeed, he knows about their troubles. Indeed, it is all in his sovereign plan and purpose. You know the old song, Nobody Knows Troubles? Except Jesus. He knows. And therefore, he's able to say to them, not only do I know, but I'm the one who is sovereignly directing even the persecution through which you are going because I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who's in charge. I may put you through the fires of persecution, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And because I want to try you, I want to test you, and I want you to come out the other side shining more gloriously than you would have otherwise. Isn't that amazing? Therefore, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Indeed, to be persecuted by the devil is cause for rejoicing. Isn't that amazing? For to be the devil's enemy is to be a friend of Christ. To be counted as a member of that holy band of martyrs. Suffering for Christ, even perhaps to death itself. As we read from the great roll call of faith from Hebrews 11 this afternoon. And all of those persecutions, did, did you catch it? Where... where Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may, might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I mean, literally, this is not like a magician. This is for real. Cut in two. Were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And the author adds this little parenthetical phrase of whom the world was not worthy. And therefore we can be encouraged, you see, as we suffer because we know that Jesus knows and indeed that he is the one who's going to bring us through all of these things. But especially don't fear Therefore, because God is using this as an instrument. God is not going to destroy you through this. He's not going to destroy you. You know, maybe you are afraid you won't be able to stand the torture or the imprisonment or the family separation or the loss of a job or whatever it is. But my friends, the Lord is using this in order to purify you and furthermore, God is going to be glorified in this. The strength of his grace will see you through and thus be revealed. What joy, therefore, and what comfort to be able to suffer for Christ's sake and to be counted, therefore, worthy of that. I, I was going to say a minute ago, I'll say it now. You know... We, we all 
we who believe in Jesus all would like to think that we're able to stand and we're going to be faithful. But there are many temptations, subtle temptations sometimes, pressure. But even in terms of the more difficult things, the, the actual physical persecution, sometimes, you know, you wonder, would you be able to withstand that torture? We're called upon to do it if we are called upon to go through that, if that's what Christ has for us. What he's trying, what he's saying to us here is that I will walk with you through it. What he's saying to us indeed is that when you go through this type of persecution, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed, happy, happy are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what joy and comfort then to be able to suffer for Christ's sake, to be counted worthy in this regard. And so Jesus himself says to you and me today, don't be afraid, don't fear. He says that to the church of Smyrna, he says that to us. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. But notice the particular suffering that he's talking about here. They had a hint of this impending persecution. They had a hint of it. Uh, Huxamah is a Bible commentator, and he put it this way. Just as distant, dark clouds and ominous rumblings of thunder point to the fact that the full fury of the storm is about to break forth. You ever... You ever heard of an approaching storm, children? You ever heard one? The, the, the clouds get really dark and you hear these, these loud thunderclaps and then the wind comes and the lightning and the heavy rain. You see, those dark clouds and those, the distant thunder, those are pointing, those are hinting, they're telling you this is what's going to be happening. Be ready, be warned, and that's the picture that you have here. The idea of being ostracized, of being cast out of polite society, was the signal that actual torture would follow. For not only would they be no longer part of polite society, but some of them would be cast into prison. Now, prison is not a fun place. It's dark many times, dank quarters. Prisoners often back then were chained, often they had to supply their own food. Many times being put in prison was the same as being sentenced to death. You would never get out. And so many of them were going to be imprisoned, imprisoned for their faith. But notice also there was going to be tribulation or trouble for 10 days. So this term, 10 days, I don't think this is a literal 10-day period. Days is pointing to a relatively short period. 10, the notion of 10 days implies a relatively brief span. Uh, we find this in Genesis 24, verse 
5, Daniel 1, verse 12. And so it's, a, it's, it's going to be an intense but relatively brief period of time. Ten days, relatively brief. This indicates that Satan's persecution is limited by God. He cannot do just what he wants. He is under God's control. God will let him go only so far in persecuting his people. And so the persecution is limited by God and measured out by him. And so we see then this suffering. Don't fear. This is the exhortation. Don't fear what you're about to suffer but rather, what's the exhortation as well? Be faithful. Be faithful. For faithfulness, you see, is a prime virtue. Faithfulness means loyalty. If you're faithful, you're going to be loyal, whether it be to a husband or wife, or whether it be to a friend, whether it be to a schoolmate, whatever. Faithfulness implies loyalty. And it is loyalty, if it's genuine, that goes through thick and thin. This is a chief virtue of God's covenant people. Be faithful. Be faithful, Jesus says, unto death. Now certainly that means to the moment of death. Be faithful. In other words, as you live your life, be faithful. Someday you're going to die. Be faithful from now until the day of your death. But it also means being faithful even if your confession of faith in Jesus leads to your death. Be faithful unto death. Then he says, he who has an ear, verse 11, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we have the exhortation. But we have one more thing here besides the exhortation, and it is that of the promise. The promise. The promise, first of all, revolves around the idea of a crown of life. A crown of life. The end of verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you... You remember I said that Smyrna was the crown jewel, if you will, of Asia Minor. The crown jewel of cities. As a matter of fact, it was on the brow of a hill with a crown of stately build, uh, um, a crown of stately buildings, as it were. So it looked like, looked like a almost like a crown up on the hill there. Furthermore, what's interesting is that a garland of victory. You know what a garland is? It's like you know you've seen this maybe in, in the original Olympic games. What did they run for? They ran for just this this. Uh, Garland, this you know the leaves like on, on a crown. That's what they did. That's what they won. There was no gold medal. You understand? Back in the original Olympics, but it was the honor then of having this garland of victory that would be awarded to the winner of the athletics contest in Smyrna. That's not a lot, is it? Even in terms of this world, but it was the honor of it. You see, a garland of victory, a crown. Furthermore, the city had cast in its lot with Rome, depending upon the imperial power and its crown for its life. But here, Jesus says, don't be taken in by those stately buildings there and all the majesty of them, and don't run the race of life for a crown that is perishable, that's just a bunch of leaves, 
and don't depend upon Caesar, the imperial power, because he's going to die someday too. He is not God. But rather, I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. The symbol then is that of eternal life as a crown of victory. Paul Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's a crown of righteousness, but it's also the crown of life. And so Jesus himself says, I will give you, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. But more than that, he, verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You will not be hurt by the second death. This is promised to the one who is the overcomer, the overcomer, the victorious one. Now what is the second death? death. Now, this is an eternal death. It's an eternal death. It means to die and always to be dying. Death is not a fun thing. I don't know if any of you have seen a person die. I saw when my father died. And uh, he wanted to live. He struggled. He wanted to live, you see. Death is never fun. But yet he finally acquiesced in that as he went into eternity. But my friends, far worse than physical death is spiritual death. Far worse than all the persecution and all the tribulation and all the torment we may go through in this life. Far worse is to experience hell, which is eternal separation from God. Now let us be clear, hell is not experienced here on earth. You may hear things like, war is hell, or my marriage is hell, or left-wing denomination describe worldwide nuclear holocaust as being the, quote, second death. It is not. Even as horrible as war might be, even nuclear war, it is not hell. Hell is the total absence of God's benevolence, of God's goodness to you, and the total presence of his wrath. And this punishment, hell, therefore comes after death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment not in Christ, you will be eternally separated from God. Therefore, as Jesus said, you should fear him who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. What can a mere man do to you? The worst he can do is to kill you. But if you are in Christ, then as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. That very action of killing your body delivers you from the pains of this life and delivers you into the presence of Jesus if you are 
And therefore, we are told here, do not be afraid of persecution. For the one who overcomes will not go to hell, but will go to heaven. So three points of application today. The first is this. Be aware. Be aware that Satan is the origin of all opposition to righteousness. Be aware that Satan is behind. He's the mastermind. He's the man, if you know, the Wizard of Oz. He's the man behind the curtain. He's the hidden figure behind the curtain who's manipulating all the levers that he can. Satan is the origin of all opposition to righteousness. That's why in verse 10, we read, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Also, the idea in verse 9, you are, these folks are a synagogue of Satan. In the beginning, he was a slanderer and a murderer. He hates God. He hates Christ. And if you are a Christian, he hates you. Be aware of Satan's role. Number two, understand the nature of the church militant. Be, uh, understand the nature of the church militant, the church at war. Be willing to fight. See, we're called upon to fight. Did you know that? I thought we were called to be peaceful people. Well, yes, in one sense. But we're also called upon to fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, Ephesians chapter 6. Be willing to fight for that which is right. We must oppose the wickedness of false churches. Paul the Apostle certainly did. Paul says in Galatians 1, if, if I or anyone else or an angel from heaven comes and preaches any other gospel, let him go to hell. Literally. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Paul was willing to call out false teaching, and so must we. Here, the Lord Jesus himself says most definitely that these people are false prophets. A faithful church, when her husband is slandered, will speak in his defense. So be willing to fight, and in this regard then, embrace the notion of the necessity, if need be, of separation. We must hate the deeds of evildoers and cast them out of the assembly. Even as the church at Ephesus did. They tried people. They had judicial trials. They tried them. Even at that, however, Jesus says, but you've still left your first love. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have tried the people. It doesn't mean they should not have proceeded judicially against them. And so we must hate the deeds of evildoers and cast them out of the assembly. You know, in, in the little epistle of 2 John, it's one of my favorite epistles, the little epistle of 2 John, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine about Christ, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And if that's true in terms of our, of just our private homes, the principle certainly applies with regard to the house of God. Revelation 22, 14 and following. Blessed, happy are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and they enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, fully immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. However, what happens if in a church wicked people gain control and there is no way of forcing them out? Then we may be called upon at some point to exercise what is called discipline in reverse. If churches degenerate into synagogues of Satan, denying the gospel of Jesus Christ, for example, promoting immorality, promoting abortion, and so forth, at a certain point it will be evident that the candlestick has been removed by Jesus. The glory will have departed, and Ichabod is written over the gates. And so exercise discipline if necessary, separate and exercise discipline in reverse. But in any case, be prepared, as part of the church militant, be prepared for persecution for engaging in this spiritual warfare. So be aware that Satan is the origin of all opposition to righteousness. Understand the nature of the church militant. And finally, take great comfort in the midst of trouble. Take great comfort in the midst of trouble. You see, persecution is often what happens to the church. Persecution is, when you look at church history, this usually the church suffers persecution. It's, it's relatively rare to have periods of calm and peace. We've been blessed in this country. I don't think we're going to be blessed much longer. As we see what is going on, as we hear what is going on in our society, with our government or governments. Persecution is often the lot of the church. But my friends, take great comfort, not only knowing that others have gone through this experience, but take great comfort because the Lord knows the persecution to which you are called. To, to, as a matter of fact, he, not, he knows the persecution which he has allotted to you but he also will not, with the temptation or with the situation, give you more than what you're able to stand. For those who abide in Jesus are the overcomers. They are the victorious ones. Samuel Rutherford was a great 17th century Scottish theologian. And this is the way he put it. Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. And so therefore, my friends, be an overcomer. Take great comfort midst trouble. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And Father, we thank thee for the church in Smyrna and the example that it is to us. And we pray, Father, that we 
would likewise be faithful. Faithful even unto death. We pray, Lord, not that not only for ourselves, we pray that, Lord, for those who will come after us in this very location, in this very place here in Atlanta, in this plot of land, we pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that this congregation would remain faithful until the day of Christ. However long, centuries perhaps, however long that will be. So be pleased to accomplish that. Take not our candlestick away. Enable this congregation to remain faithful until thou dost return. For we pray, Lord Jesus, in thy name. Amen.